I think there are many people in Europe that for a long time thought that America would eventually converge with Europe. I think Fukuyama is on record saying that America might eventually become like Denmark. That's not working, right? And I think the Trump years are perhaps the moment when we wake up to the reality that the two sides of the Atlantic have a lot in common, have a history that is deeply connected, but one can no longer assume automatically that they feel the same about everything. And welcome to Think Atlantic, a series by IRI's Transatlantic Strategy Division, in which we provide you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. My name is Thibaut Muzerg, and I am your host for this show. Due to the elections in America, we are changing a little bit our schedule this month, which means that you, lucky people, are going to get three episodes this month instead of two. And two of these episodes are going to be about the United States, which I guess is the hot topic of this month. Now, I need to start with a with a short disclaimer. This program and today's show in particular is not an electoral podcast. We are not making any campaigning for any candidates. And actually, in this episode, which is going to be published on election day, is not so much about U.S. elections as about America in general, its culture, Lago Sensu, and the evolution of its identity relationship with Europe, the West, and the world. So joining me today to discuss all this is Bruno Massais, who is going to talk with me about his new book, History Has Begun, which came out uh, earlier this year. It provides a short but very, very, very dense and intense account of the changing face of America in its historical, philosophical, cultural, but also political dimensions. And frankly, I don't know how he managed to put so much food for thought on so many topics in 178 pages. This is not Bruno's first book, as he has already written extensively about the dawn of Eurasia. Uh, that was his first book, and China's Belt and Road. A graduate of Harvard University, he currently is a non-resident fellow at the Hudson Institute, and he's also a citizen of Portugal, for which he served as Europe minister between 2013 and 2015 under the government of Pedro Passos Coelho. Bruno, thanks for taking the time to join us today, and welcome to the show. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Bruno, as I mentioned earlier, History Has Begun, The Birth of a New America is an extremely dense book. So I'm afraid we're only going to be able to take a superficial look at it in the, the half hour that we have. So I suggest we dive in immediately. The first chapter of, of your book, some would say a first part, are devoted to the, the cultural rise of America, or the, the rise of America as a culture. And, and much of this rise is initially linked with Europe. And I actually have to say that I sometimes wondered whether history has begun was about America or about America and Europe. The two are obviously linked, but uh, American culture starts as a sort of extension, uh, sometimes a replica of European culture. And uh, you mentioned the, the example of James Fenimore Cooper adapting uh, Walter Scott's uh, historical novel genre to the American frontier. And as we move further in time and you know, we leave behind the, the 19th century, American culture comes to become much more of an equal to European culture. Artists and, and, and people working in American culture feel much more confident. And then basically, American culture then takes the lead in the West sometime between 1917 and 1945. And you see the likes of Pablo Picasso, Maurice Ravel, Thomas Mann, Giacometti, uh, who get 
progressively replaced by the likes of Jason Pollock, Elvis Presley, Jack Kerouac, which, who you also mentioned in, in, in the book, and, and people like Jeff Koons, more nearer to us, as global references in the arts. And I, obviously, I'm not mentioning cinema and televisions because we're going to talk about these later on in the, in the program. As the phenomenon has continued to amplify since the end of the Second World War, you argue that America will eventually, uh, or is even already sort of breaking away to, to be its own world. And I quote you, page 19, you say that America is developing a, a new indigenous society separate from our modern Western civilization, rooted in new feelings and thoughts, end quote. What do you mean by that? And, and what are the consequences for Europe? Because it, it seems to imply that almost a secession between Europe and America, at least on the cultural level. That's correct. Um, uh, I do think that's something we have to think about. And uh, every week or every month brings us new evidence that this is a real issue. We're now in the middle of uh, this um, intellectual clash of sorts between French intellectuals and even French authorities and uh, the intellectual lights in America, the New York Times and the Washington Post, guiding lights of culture. And what I think is perplexing people in France is, is the sense that they can no longer rely on the same intellectual and emotional reactions to events. But we've seen that for a while. We've seen that in the way Europeans react to a number of institutions in America, the religiosity of American life, the death penalty, and in particular, the widespread use of guns and the very lax gun laws that exist in America. All these things have created perplexity in Europe. And there's, of course, similar phenomenon the other way around. And a question of, of how to interpret this phenomena, uh, I think there are many people in Europe that for a long time thought that America would eventually converge with Europe. Perhaps Barack Obama was the person to bring that about. An interesting reversal, because for a long time we thought that Europe would converge with America. We used to think, and this is, I think, Tocqueville's uh, great innovation, to think that America was Europe's future. And then many people reverted this and started to think that perhaps Europe was America's future. I think Fukuyama is on record saying that America might eventually become like Denmark. That's not working right. And I think the Trump years are perhaps the moment when we wake up to the reality that the two sides of the Atlantic have a lot in common, have a history that is deeply connected, but one can no longer assume automatically that they feel the same about everything. Mm. One of the premises of my book, sort of theoretical wagers in my book, is that if a country becomes as powerful as America uh, became between the two wars, then inevitably it will develop a civilizational character of its own. That it was implausible to think that a country can be the sole global superpower and still remain under the intellectual, cultural, philosophical a shadow of, of another another power. Conversation I had with a former Indian foreign secretary where two or three years ago I was still thinking, as Tocqueville thinks, that America is part of the European world intellectually, culturally, philosophically. Uh, and his response was, uh, well, certainly not. If anything, Europe is part of the American world, which I think uh, you, you really need to be outside Europe and the U.S. to be so realistic as he was about this. His point was that there are a number of, uh, of American uh, battalions stationed in Europe 
the euro is a secondary uh, dependent currency in respect to the dollar. So this idea that America is part of the European world doesn't make sense. Hmm. But for a long time, we lived, we lived with this contradiction that America was the center of power, but Europe was the center of ideas. And this book is actually an attempt, uh, which has been made in the past, but I suggest timidly that it was too early in the past, but an attempt to actually develop a fully American political philosophy. I go back to authors that I consider important, uh, but I do think that my book sort of tries to develop self-consciously a political philosophy for America that is no longer European liberalism or the European Enlightenment. So America has a, now has a life of its own, and, and in many ways, it's Europe that is Americanized uh, uh, rather than the other, other way around. But uh, let me follow up on, on my previous question and your answer and, and maybe offer, if not some nuance, at least some food for thought, because it seems to me that when we talk about American culture today, we are clearly talking about a culture that has become a reference vis-a-vis -vis Europe with Europeans basically since 1945, very often reproducing American cultural codes, sometimes as a tribute, other times as a critique, sometimes as both. I mean, think about uh, spaghetti westerns in Italy in the 1960s and 70s. And I mean, the, the examples, you have as many examples as you have genres in, in the arts. But I wonder whether it is not so much that American culture and actually also its political culture uh, has become dominant, which is, you know, which is clearly the case. But also if Europe is not engaging, maybe not only in a simple copying exercise, reproducing the works of American masters, but in a sort of back and forth movement in which Europe remains the junior partner. And sometimes, you know, the, the back and forth is, you know, towards a wall. But, but at times, you know, the Europeans kind of get it right or almost anticipate future developments in America. In the arts, for example, I just mentioned uh, spaghetti westerns, some of which uh, push the genre to new heights. And when you think of Sergio Leone, for example, he's become pretty much a, a reference. Uh, but just like Fenimore, Cooper, Fenimore Cooper's inspiration from Walter Scott created a new genre in literature, uh, which is the frontier fiction, in many ways, you know, th th there was an answer to Elvis Presley in Europe, and that was the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, which were as much agents of Americanization as uh, uh, pioneers of a new type of European, I don't know if at the time of Brexit we can talk about a European uh, when it's British, but sort of pop music and rock and roll. But getting into maybe something less cultural but, but and more political, here's one, one example that puzzles me, and that's Silvio Berlusconi, because Berlusconi in the 90s is, is very much, you know, what you, what you talk about is the, the continuity of, of the election of, of Ronald Reagan, a show business, a Hollywood actor. But in many ways, the, the sort of reality TV aspects that he brought in into his government and his political career almost anticipate the style and, and, and sort of governing of President Trump, right? And uh, also we have Volodymyr Zelensky who gets elected president of Ukraine. You know, it seems really that we, we're, we're going full circle. Do you see on the part of Europeans, uh, maybe back and forth is not the right term, but some sort of exchange or is it just going one way and are the Europeans just copying and, and, and taking from, from American culture? I think I, I see things very differently from the description you just gave. Uh, so when we used to talk about the Americanization of Europe, uh, that wasn't the right way to talk about it, because in fact, what was happening, let's say, take the example of rock and roll. Uh, it is true that uh, Europeans in the 50s and 60s were fascinated and very much under the influence of what was happening in America, this moment of radical liberation, 
the beat generation, rock and roll, but many other examples, Hollywood movies, certainly after the war, they took Europe by storm. But this is a discussion from 70 years ago. This is not the present anymore. What happened then was that developments that were typically European, they had to do with the emancipation of the individual. That's the European Enlightenment. They had happened faster in America because America didn't have to deal with uh, such entrenched traditions and the aristocracy, the church, uh, the established church, uh, and the great families, uh, the great uh, manor families, and so on. So it's it's Tocqueville's story. Some developments that were specifically European were invented in Europe. They had been transplanted to America and had developed faster there, and then they were imported back to Europe. This is Tocqueville's story, and it was very relevant in the 60s, but that's no longer what's happening now. Now we have developments that are not European at all, that in many respects clash with European traditions of the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution. The whole discussion about post-truth and fantasy in America that I engage with in my book, this is no longer European culture. So if it were to happen today, the Americanization of Europe would be truly a radical transformation of European traditions. But that's not happening, in my opinion. Uh, and what happened in the past, uh, and I quote, uh, I think, from Gramsci and a couple of other authors uh, right after the war, right after 45, uh, but even in the 30s, there are examples of that. They are very careful to point out that what was happening uh, was not the Americanization of Europe, was the Europeanization of, of Europe. Bringing this phenomenon from America was just a way to move faster, but in the direction that Europe was moving anyway. Uh, and of course, some European conservatives uh, would call it American fashions because they didn't like them, but they were not American fashions. I mean, the idea of rock and roll is already present in Baudelaire. It's just that it didn't have an electric guitar. But so it was not American culture. It was the culture of Europe that had moved faster in, in America. Today, while well, you point out Berlusconi, I think Berlusconi and Trump are diametrically opposite. Berlusconi is someone that comes from the entertainment world and wants to become a politician and succeeds in, in some sense in, in becoming a politician. He uses his fame, he uses his money, he uses his name recognition in order to become a politician. Then he behaves like a politician. Uh, you see the meetings, he's, uh, he's, he's trying to be a statesman. That's what he wants to be. Now, Trump, and this is what's radical, new, and in some respects, one has to admire Trump for the... Um, stubbornness with which he has pursued this program. Uh, Trump is the opposite. He's someone who uh, uses politics as a stage for entertainment. There's a remarkable uh, speech he gives at a rally in Minneapolis about a year ago where he talks about his election night in 2016, and he tells his supporters, do you remember the night we won? It was the greatest night in the history of television which I find one of the most remarkable statements of, of the Trump years. He thinks of his election as something that happened in the history of television, something that happened on television, but something that happened not in political history, not in the history of the American Republic, not in the history of American democracy, but in the history of television, of global television. And this is not Berlusconi. Trump is not Berlusconi. Trump is not Schwarzenegger. And certainly if you look at Zelensky, he's not Trump at all. He's someone who's trying to follow the manual of how to be a politician. You see him sitting next to Trump and you see who is the entertainer. It's certainly Trump and Zelensky is trying to be a statesman and to behave like, like a statesman. Uh, it's not new, by the way, that uh, someone who is famous would, would try to use his fame to pursue a political career. It's something we could find uh, certainly in, in, the, in the Italian Renaissance, if need be. 
so that's not new. Uh, I think what is new about Trump is something much more radical, which is to truly use politics for the sake of entertainment and for the sake of fantasy and not the other way around. That's a perfect transition, actually, to my to my next question. This question about entertainment and television, because that brings us to the what I think is the central point of your book, which is that the, the United States, whose economic and political prominence is very linked, and you say it in the in the book, with the, the rise of Hollywood and and the advent of television, is is basing it, its culture, at least its political culture, in many ways on a TV-like script of fictions and narrative, and and this applies to politics, obviously. I mean, we remember. President Obama was a master storyteller, uh, and, and you make interesting point on page 108 of your book that uh, I quote here, President Trump is a reality television star who filled the White House with media personalities and runs the administration like a television series, carefully planning distinct storylines where conflict and crisis are used to power the plot before the announced fully scripted resolution. It seems like America as a whole, and, and as you say, President Trump maybe has, has, has brought this this tendency to to its conclude to it, a, a one logical conclusion. So America as a whole is living on on narratives following what you call the the principle of unreality, which I find interesting as a, a sort of North American parallel to the magical realism of uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and uh, and S- Southern America. And so politics alternate between sort of two of different scripts, right? Either the West Wing or House of Cards, or maybe Joe Biden is elected president, maybe it will be another another script. But the, the whole political and media process has come to revolve around stories, storytelling, but also storylines that will alternate depending on, on, on the wishes of the, of the president, but also the wishes of the audience, I guess. So now, I find this very compelling, but I, I wonder whether the current crisis of confidence that America is going through is not also linked to this dependence on stories. Either the current stories are not as unifying as they, as they used to be, and, and that brings doubt in the minds of many people, or maybe a new reality has in some ways made the narrative less compelling. Is this a case for reshaping, renewing the great American narrative, or should America confront reality then, rather than try to shape it? Well, the question here, of course, is what is reality? Um, and politically, this is a very delicate and dangerous question. So I hear sometimes these comparisons between the present moment in America in the 30s, and uh, Anna Harent is quoted calling attention to the dangers of political fictions. Well, that is not the case at all. Both Nazism and Sovietism were political theories about reality and about the rule of reality over human beings. Nazism made the point that uh, biological reality, superiority of the races, and the inevitable victory of one race over the others, and Sovietism had theses going back to Marx about historical reality and the inevitable development of certain historical forces. So these were political theories of reality, and what was inhuman and dangerous about them was precisely that they subordinated human beings to reality. So today, when I hear all these calls to return to reality, that's what I have in mind. Reality is not simple, and in politics, it's the most dangerous idea we can come up with. So let's at least try to be a bit more sophisticated about this question and and not call for a return to reality, because that's actually what Nazism and Sovietism were doing. Against liberalism and the relativism of truth that liberalism brought about, both Nazism and Sovietism were supposed to be a return to reality. So in America, we have something different. We have these fictions that, in a way, uh, keep each other in check. 
it's a kind of separation of powers, but it's an economy of attention that uh, none of these fictions becomes too dangerous because people move on. They get bored uh, and they get attached to another fiction. Or in some cases, precisely because they are attached to fictions, when they threaten to become too real, they move on to something else or they find someone to switch off the fiction, which I think Biden is, in my view, a kind of a kill switch. You turn off the Trumpian fiction, the Trumpian myth, when it either threatens to become too real or it has been swamped by the reality of the pandemic. But Trump failed on these two accounts. Uh, he was not able to reassure enough people that this was a myth, a story. I think many people are worried that his virtual authoritarianism could become a literal, actual, real authoritarianism. And second, he was not able to keep the pandemic at bay. And the pandemic as a symbol of reality, the virus as a symbol of reality, has invaded American political life. Uh, and, and Trump has not been able at least to offer a promise of a solution. On the left, we see something similar. I think wokeness is uh, another fiction, which in the future may be as successful as uh, Trump's uh, virtual nationalism. Uh, there are others. Uh, there are many fictions being tested, and uh, it's a question of which one will be adopted in the future. Biden, it's an interesting question. I'll, I'll finish with that. But I think um, probably the best way to regard Biden is as a kill switch, as someone that is turning off the Trumpian story, uh, and he doesn't really stand for anything in particular. There's actually something quite symbolic about Biden because it's almost like returning to the world before Trump. So truly switching off the Trump channel and returning to the world before. In itself, that's a myth. I mean, that's it's an unreality because you can't, in reality, you cannot turn back the clock to the status quo ante, right? That's right. So it will be simply switching off Trump. But then the, the question arises of what will come next. Uh, and what I expect, I've been trying to anticipate what a Biden presidency would look like. And, you know, if I have to make a prediction, which is always useful because then you, at least you make a wager and find out if you are right or wrong and stake your predictive abilities on a particular forecast. I think uh, Biden is probably going to represent no more than this erasure of Trump. But at the same time, you're going to see these forces bubbling up on the left and in the Democratic Party that are already preparing what will come after. Could be wokeness, uh, could be Ocasio-Cortez, uh, could be many things. And I expect the Biden presidency to be a clash between uh, Biden as a return to a world that no longer exists and these forces uh, more active within the party and within the left, in some sense, clashing with Biden uh, all throughout at least the first two, three years of his term. And, and by then, uh, the future will be clear. But so, I mean, it's interesting because you, you talked about virtual radicality or virtual radicalism, and that's one of the points in your book that I found the most fascinating. And I spotted this, uh, which is page 124. Trump offers Americans the, the virtual experience of a nationalist regime without its real world consequences. And in the same way, Sanders, on the other hand, is playing the same game, offering the virtual experience of a socialist regime. Maybe that's the mind of a European here. But how far can we go into that game? Because at some point, and you mentioned it, that some people are afraid that the virtual nationalism becomes real. I mean, at some point, either the fiction becomes reality 
or the reality becomes fiction. It's, you, you also mentioned, I think, uh, in, in foreign policies, a quote about this, that the, the fiction is there and it shapes reality. So, I mean, which way can it go? Where, where do you see things going? Well, I think that was the question as I see it. And perhaps the American public thought that uh, Sanders was not entirely reliable precisely on this question. I think the American public would have been open to a virtual leftism, a virtual socialism, a virtual revolutionary moment, but not the real thing. Mm. And Sanders in the book, that was the version that was published in March, I thought Sanders could do this. But now in retrospect, I actually think he failed precisely on that point. It just could not convince enough people that this would not be a very real and very dangerous experiment. Mm. Uh, and he had a certain past, different from the current Sanders, I think. But his past was a past of actual revolutionary activity, sentences about Cuba, uh, and other things that were troubling to many people. I think wokeness, which is not really represented by anyone, is it? Uh, uh, which is kind of unfortunate, but we don't have a, a figure. And it's not Sanders, although he was tempted by some of the ideas, and it's not Ocasio Cortez. But wokeness is an idea. Uh, and Robin DiAngelo's book, I guess, uh, uh, could, could be an example of this, is much more attractive along these dimensions uh, because wokeness has revealed itself to be simultaneously an extraordinary, revolutionary, and extreme program, but something that is not applied to reality at all. Mm -hmm. So to the point where it is compatible with the current version of American capitalism. And the largest corporations have been quite happy to adopt wokeness and to have seminars on, on DeAngelo's book, uh, White Fragility, showing, therefore, that wokeness is perfectly compatible with American life as it exists, and it doesn't have any aspiration to actually transform political reality. I think that explains why it has become so powerful. And I think if we had a political figure that was able to incorporate this movement and to make it clear to the public that this is both going to be a riveting, extreme experience of revolutionary symbol, but at the same time with no danger of actually having real-world consequences, it would be almost irresistible. And it may still happen for 2024. Mm, sort of socialism, but with capitalistic characteristics or other way around, maybe. Right. Okay, so this is super fascinating, but I'm afraid we, we don't have that much time. So let's move on to, to U.S. foreign policy, which is the, the subject of the last chapter of your book. And uh, you, you make the case here again that U.S. foreign policy has often been shaped by narratives or always been shaped by narratives, which have at times made America fantastically great the end of the Cold War and the end of World War II come to mind. But the failure, the relative failure of these narratives have also made America look perhaps weaker than it was or is in reality. And I'm thinking, of course, of, of the immediate after Vietnam or, or the current situation after Iraq and Afghanistan. Here again, we, we have a dichotomy here between the, the narrative, the unreality and the, and the reality. And I mean, here in foreign policy, there's really a case to say that, you know, when things are good, the unreality uh, reinforces reality because in some ways it, it shapes reality. But when they are not aligned, then basically we have a really uh, soul-searching in Washington because mainly uh, U.S. foreign policy is, is a thing that, that people in Washington care about. So do you think America is in need of a new post-liberal foreign policy narrative or a new liberal 
foreign policy narrative, which you know may be developed with the, the rise of China, or does it need to be just adaptation to new harsh realities and and a sort of Jacksonian diplomacy of give and take and extreme flexibility that some people are asking for? What is your view on this? Let me make the case that unreality and post-truth are also what we need in foreign policy and in American foreign policy. Uh, let me go back a little bit. So traditionally, the European Enlightenment had a certain vision of the truth and what every society in the world should, should look like. What that culminated in was, of course, European colonialism and imperialism and the attempt to shape the whole world in the image of a certain philosophical program, European philosophical program. And there was a tragedy, of course, that we're still trying to recover from in Europe. Uh, I think uh, at some point, American decision makers actually flirted with this idea. That's how I read Vietnam in the book. Vietnam was still a traditional European program of transforming a foreign society from the ground up. And that, of course, was the madness of Vietnam, the idea that one could create an American-style democracy in Vietnam. What were the paths after Vietnam? Well, the United States could either have insisted on that program and then would have essentially become a European-style empire, would have had to colonize Vietnam. It could have retreated into what the European Union became. Uh, you uh, continue to try to shape the rest of the world, but you do it through your example or through uh, trade or through uh, spending money on promoting human rights. And the United States also did not choose that path. Uh, I think it deliberately chose a path of unreality or fantasy. The Iraq war is a good example of that. But that is a path that in a way is inevitable. And what I argue in the book is that if we take this path to the very end, if America accepts that there isn't a truth to apply to the rest of the world, that Europeans were wrong about that and they are still wrong about that, there is no truth to apply by force, or by example to the rest of the world. I think that's what American foreign policy needs. It needs to be able to live with the existence of different truths. And its role should be precisely of a moderating influence. When China, which very deliberately believes that the whole world should follow a Chinese model, when China tries to impose this model outside its borders, it would be very helpful if the United States was there with its skeptical, cynical influence uh, making sure that this single truth does not become overbearing and does not aspire to become universal. And could do the same in the case of the European Union, could do the same in the case of ideas in India that also aspire to become universal. I see the role of the United States as almost as a master storyteller that brings many different perspectives on the world together and does the necessary job of making sure that they can exist together and that none of them becomes overbearing and none of them actually dreams that it can become universal. I see the world today as divided between those who want to export their ideas worldwide and the United States, which I think has the possibility to become the country that understands that the whole world is not going to adopt a single truth. Mm -hmm. and that many truths have to live together. Again, just as the examples I gave about Nazism and Sovietism, we have to see the enormous possibility and the enormous promise of unreality. Unreality is a very powerful political value. 
and it's in fact reality and truth we know from experience can become very dangerous and even totalitarian. Wow, that's a lot of food for thought. Thanks a lot, Bruno. I think I have time for one last question. And here I'd like to get your thoughts on on one topic that we, we discussed a couple of weeks ago when we met at Globsec in Bratislava. And, and that topic is, is technical progress. And you touch upon this question at the, the end of your book and you write uh, that, a and I quote here, page 149, a society where innovation plays a larger and larger role is one where an increasingly greater share of economic wealth will be generated by a small segment of creative individuals. Mass change starts with one person or a very small group. Inequality is a feature, not a bug. This is something that I find, first of all, very true, uh, but also very worrying because uh, we're, we're at a time in which inequality is really becoming a real issue in American politics. And, and, and I think this is also coming to Europe if it's not already there. And I wonder whether this is not a sign that America, like Europe before, is becoming more skeptical about innovation and technical progress. And, and that would mean that Asian countries, and in particular China, would have the possibility to fill that void and take the leadership of this definer of, of, of modern power, which is technology. And I mean, we're not obviously not there, but the rise of Chinese tech companies like Huawei, Baidu, Tencent, and others is obviously reinforcing this, this sort of narrative. At the same time, obviously, you have more and more American intellectuals who are uh, showing a lot of skepticism about social media, about Facebook, which are, you know, all American inventions, right? So do you imagine America turning its back on modernity? Or is it just, you know, part of the package of redefinition of American unreality, what we're seeing right now? This question of technology is, is absolutely critical. One of the main ideas in my book, and I think one of the most promising one I'd like to return to in, in some future writings, is this idea that there is a clash between liberalism and technology, which is very similar to the clash between liberalism and religion in the past, but also still in the present, as, as we see, for example, in Poland this week. But this clash between liberalism and technology essentially means that liberalism ends up placing obstacles in the path of technology, insurmountable in the end. Because liberalism stands for a number of values, a certain level of equality in society, privacy, also transparency, public use of reason, facts, uh, reality, that are not entirely compatible with technology. And so what happens, and we've seen that in Europe, but also in, in the United States, you start to get this tension. Mm -hmm. Liberalism starts to become a clear obstacle to technological development. As you said, this is problematic because it raises the possibility that non-liberal societies like China will actually uh, win the technological race. I even wonder, to be completely honest, whether what Tyler Cohen or Peter Thiel talk about, the great stagnation, that starting in the 70s, uh, Western societies stopped being able to produce genuine technological innovation. What do we, you know, the only thing we get is the smartphone in these 50 years. And the smartphone, by the way, is a kind of defective form of innovation because it has a much greater impact on the life of the mind. Uh, it is private. Uh, it is not political. It doesn't change the physical world. So it's something happening here. And I think it's from the moment when liberalism becomes completely hegemonic and dominant, uh, technology starts to find a hard time to truly develop. 
So we have to answer this question, and I think it's a it's a huge question, not easy to solve. The suggestion, very briefly, that I give in the book is that perhaps we have to look very seriously at the idea of a universal basic income. Because if we try to eliminate inequality, then we, we, we place, again, an obstacle in the path of technology. You cannot develop the colonies on Mars uh, if uh, without the billionaires that are thinking about it. Or then you have to have the state doing it, as in China. So we do need to allow the private sector to think big and to dream big, while at the same time protecting individuals from the ravages of technological progress. And I do think there's a certain elegance in the idea of a universal basic income because it allows people either to play the game of a highly technological capitalism or, if they so wish, to remove themselves from the game but still to have a human life and not to become objects in the technological game. Uh, I think it's a, it's a promising solution. It's not a coincidence that so many people in Silicon Valley have fallen in love with the idea. I think what universal basic income would do would be to free technological development uh, because uh, you would no longer have the real world consequences that we are so afraid of right now and that prevent us from giving it free reign. I think we've broken a lot of taboos here, if only in this question and conversation. I would be able to continue this conversation for hours and I have like 20 questions in my mind, but I'm afraid we've run out of time and we're going to have to leave it here. So Bruno Massaes, much, much obrigado for taking part in this show and for enlightening us on all these issues with this unique transatlantic perspective that you have. It's, it's really unique in the sense that you worked in America, you've been a minister in Portugal, and you really go back and forth. And that's an amazing intellectual exercise that we've done over the past few minutes. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it, then you should definitely order Bruno Massaes' book, which is called History Has Begun, The Birth of a New America. And it is available in all good bookstores, both online and offline. He is also the author of two other books uh, that I mentioned earlier on, The Dawn of Eurasia and Belt and Road, which are definitely worth a read. And if I'm lucky, I will try to get Bruno back on the show to talk about these. You can also check out Bruno Massaes' Twitter account uh, to follow his work, and that's at Massaes Bruno altogether. And of course, while you are browsing the web, you should definitely check out IRI's website at iri.org to check out what we do to promote democracy in the transatlantic world and beyond. This is the end of this episode of Think Atlantic, the podcast that provides you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. Many thanks to Stanislava Stachova, Hannah Mont, and Sam Johannes for producing this series. Thank you very much for following us. We are honored to have you as our listeners and would like to ask you to please share your thoughts, comments. Uh, and yes, of course, if you can give us those five-star ratings, that would be great. We are going to be back in about 10 days with a special episode to execute a sort of post-mortem of the American elections with my two guests, Kristen Soltis-Anderson and Brian Berry. Thanks a lot for following us and talk to you soon.